The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. President Trump hails the biggest deal ever seen as the U.S. and China sign the Phase 1 trade agreement, while focus swiftly turns to existing tariffs and the second stage of the deal. I'm leaving them on because otherwise we have no cards to negotiate with, and negotiating with Leo is very tough. But they will all come off as soon as we finish Phase 2, well, for his part, the Chinese vice premier calls the pact a win for China, the US and the rest of the world, whilst promising Beijing will continue to open its doors to foreign players. This is a mutually beneficial and win-win agreement. It will stabilize global economic development, promote world peace and prosperity, and it is in the interest of the producers, consumers and investors in both countries. A power play, Russia's Prime Minister and government re resign as President Vladimir Putin puts forth constitutional reforms that, that could extend his reign at the top. And in an exclusive and wide-ranging interview, Saudi's former head of intelligence telling me that he believes the Iranian regime is losing its grip. You've seen the chain of demonstrations starting two years ago and continuing now and becoming very violent and being repressed by force. The regime is much less stable now than it has ever been in Iran. So let's kick off with this trade deal. China will buy an additional $200 billion worth of U.S. goods over the next two years as part of the two nations' phase one trade deal. President Donald Trump and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He signed the agreement during a White House ceremony. In return, the United States has agreed to roll back some of the tariffs it's imposed on China since Washington triggered the trade tensions back in 2018. Well, the president hailed the agreement with China as one of the biggest deals in the world by far. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. This is the biggest deal there is anywhere in the world by far. And uh, that's good. We're doing another big one next week. But this is the biggest deal anybody's ever seen. President Trump there. Well, Martin Song joins us from Beijing with more on the story. Good morning to you, Martin. Um, before we get into the, the real guts of the detail here, just give us a sense of um, how this deal signing has been received in Beijing. Uh, good morning, Jeff. Good morning, uh, Europe. Yeah, you know, very sharp contrast. Uh, triumphalism, chest beating, maybe a bit of hyperbole on the part of uh, President Trump. The reaction here in China has been uh, very different, a sharp contrast, far more muted, calibrated, and even cautionary. And we'll get to that more in just a bit. But first, let's hear the boilerplate. Uh, Vice Premier Liu He reading the text of a letter from President Xi Jinping, who was not in D.C. and did not sign on China's behalf. Take a listen. This is a mutually beneficial and win-win agreement. It will stabilize global economic development, promote world peace and prosperity, and it is in the interest of the producers, consumers and investors in both countries. 
At the same time, this agreement is not directed at or will affect the lawful rights and interests of any third country. It is in line with the rules of the World Trade Organization. So part of that letter from President Xi Jinping of China read out by Vice Premier at the signing uh, in the East Wing of, uh, of the White House. So uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, the real take, Chinese state media is a good place uh, to start. And basically, uh, the, the take, the reaction is much more muted, calibrated, and as, as I suggested a couple of seconds ago, cautionary. Uh, my take is that it seems as though the clock is ticking on this deal for them. They're worried it could very easily go south for a number of reasons. One, the ag targets are very ambitious. Can they meet those? Two, the snapback provisions, which we may have talked about earlier. Essentially, if China does not meet any of its targets, the U.S. has the right to impose sanctions in the form of tariffs on China, which China does not have the right to retaliate against. So which brings us back to square one. Rather than tariffs going down or stabilizing the status quo, they could essentially go up potentially. Two, in case China doesn't like the position it's being, uh, it's uh, it's been put in, uh, backed up in a corner, it can literally walk from this deal, which means the deal could not just go south, but potentially blow up. And then the, the other part is what was left out of the deal. No mention of Huawei or 5G or AI or robotics, for that matter, subsidies. Some of this could be uh, negotiated in phase two, which, as we know, is probably not going to be concluded, if at all, until after the November presidential uh, elections uh, here. Uh, but again, it leaves a lot of critics saying that, look, phase one, we'll take it at face value. Let's see whether we can meet those targets. But it does not change the fundamental dynam dynamics of the relationship between the U.S. and China, simply because all these much bigger strategic issues, complex issues, have not been addressed. And that's the thing. It's not being talked about in any significant forum. And uh, somebody that I talked to uh, yesterday who is now in the private sector advising U.S. corporates, but who spent a long time in government as a diplomat and also at the U.S. TR's office said, look, somebody needs to be talking about this. It is not being talked about. This is very, very important at a strategic level, but there's a vacuum right now. Back to All you. right, Martin, thank you very much for that. Um, stay there. We'll come back to you a little later on in the program. Uh, and even as Martin was talking there, we have some fresh commentary from the Chinese Vice Premier Liu He. Uh, Martin mentioned uh, recent comments. I think this is an update. And this is interesting. And it fits in with this general line about the tempered and measured response we're seeing from the Chinese government at this point. Uh, the Vice Premier saying the deal on agriculture will not affect third parties interests. I suggest that is um, aimed at some of those other countries that supply agriculture into China, probably um, Brazil and uh, several others who do supply the Chinese market. But uh, the key line really is the Vice Premier saying Chinese companies will import U.S. agricultural goods according to consumers' need, demand and supply in the market. And I won't say that's a direct rebuttal of requests for China to import ever greater amounts of agriculture from the United States, but it perhaps just gives a slightly more measured response 
to the demands for, of the Americans to this actually morning, bring Jeff. more goods into you the Chinese market. Big deals. Absolutely. Just when the news matters. Lovely to see you. Yeah, nice How to see you. How was your break? It was lovely. Yeah, it's good. Lovely. And you were in, uh, in Hong Kong, weren't you? Unfortunately, I think I've done my holidays for most of the first half of the year now. Yeah, I'll but get never you back mind. later in the year. Never Look, mind. Um, just, just one point. On. Are the Chinese going to eat an extra $40 billion worth of US ag? Uh, no. Are they going to eat an extra $40 billion of ag? Uh, no. Uh, there's going to be displacement somewhere here, isn't there? When Brazilians? you talk about uh, vegan-based uh, vegan diets, maybe the Chinese are going to embrace that in a big way. But effectively, you're right. Well, here's They're going to try and tick all boxes, aren't they? And then they got the Western diet, and then maybe they should go back to their old diet. But, they might have to to get these targets, but you're right. Well, as Jeff points out in these mm. comments, they're going to keep third parties in play, all other countries. They're not, not going to alter supply and demand dynamics, which means they're not going to stockpile. So how are they, how are they actually going to hit the targets? We, um, well, I think it just, it just comes back to the key issue that I think the shock that the Chinese initially felt when this trade war kicked off and the vulnerability and exposure they had to single suppliers. And that's been very clear in the technology space with chips, but they don't want to make the same mistake again with agriculture and obviously the problems they've had domestically with pork and the diseases that have ravished uh, the uh, pig supplies in China. Yeah. I think it's it's one of those issues they had, that they want to uh, they remind had the markets a medium about. to long-term strategy mm. to source products from across the world for the Chinese economy and then create m markets, maybe like kind of like a silk road so they could sell their goods around. If only they had a... Oh, oh. On Belt and Road. Belt and Road Initiative. Anyway, let's move on. China's state and Global Times newspaper has heralded the phase one deal and called on both sides to cherish what they have achieved over 22 months of talks. However, focus now turns to the second phase of negotiations and the impact of ongoing tariffs. The paper said the benefits stemming from the preliminary deal should encourage Beijing and Washington to swiftly move towards phase two. Speaking to CNBC, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said the first step towards a second uh, phase deal was to enforce phase one agreements. In phase two, uh, there will be additional rollback. So it's really just a question of, and we've said before, phase two may be 2A, 2B, 2C, we'll see. First step is really focusing on enforcement, but this gives China a, a big incentive to get back to the table and, and agree to the additional issues that are still unresolved. So we've got a great panel for you. Nick Morrow is lead global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And Gina Sanchez in the studio here, CEO of uh, Shantico Global. Nice to see you both. Right, Nick, let's start off with you. What is good? What is uh, questionable in this phase one trade deal? Yeah, well, I think most immediately what is good is that the status quo is changing from immediate tariff hostilities. Um, that in, on its own is a positive, the fact that um, we're seeing a bit of a pause here. That's good for consumer confidence. That's good for investor confidence. Um, that's good for recovering in trade flows later this year, not just between the China, China and the U.S., but also um, kind of uh, on, on a more global scale. What's bad is everything that your segment has kind of just discussed. Um, there are significant questions around enforcement, the ability for China to implement uh, some of the things that it's nominally committed to under this deal. And I think if you look at China's relationship with the U.S. Um, historically in terms of, you know, what it's agreed to in terms of um, various trade agreements, um, there, there's a question on credibility here, a question around whether China has the commitment or the, the willingness to, to commit to these kinds of things that it's dealing with. And so this idea around enforcement is going to be a big risk moving forward. Um, and I think uh, there, there is a risk as a result that we might see uh, a very quick resumption in tariff hostilities later this year. 
Same question to you, really, Gina. What do you like and what do you have worries about, questions uh, along the lines of Nick, maybe? Well, you know, I, I agree that this does kind of create a, an element of certainty, but it doesn't address any real issues. If anything, I would say that neither party really gets what they're going for. If you look at what the, what the phase one deal doesn't accomplish, that list is much greater than what it, it is trying to accomplish. You know, you, you're looking at, you're leaving in place $360 billion worth of tariffs, right? So that leaves China unhappy. You have no addressing of sort of IP protection on the part of U.S. companies. Um, that needs addressing. You, you don't have any uh, protection or any kind of reform towards the subsidies um, to Chinese SOEs, which make competitiveness a big issue. So those are big things that they've sort of left on the table and said, we'll deal with that in phase two, likely after the election. Right. And this $40 billion agreement to to buy food for a country that has never bought more than $26 billion uh, of agriculture historically ever. That is a, a huge question. I, I just finished Cecilia Malmstrom saying it looks very bilateral, this deal as well. You know, in a multilateral world, that seems very interesting. I want to pick up on the IP theft mm. angle because what we've had so far uh, and what's been fleshed out in the agreement is that China will submit an action plan to strengthen international uh, property protection within 30 days of the agreement taking effect. So we're looking out for some detail over the course of the next month. Nick, come in on this. What are you expecting China to flesh out at this point and what the, will the market reaction be? Yeah, I mean, when you look at China's past commitments on intellectual property protection, um, I'd personally say that we've actually seen some positive movement in this regard. You look at some of the major um, American trade associations or the other foreign trade associations in the market, and um, citing progress in IP is something that has emerged as somewhat of a constant over the past couple of years. Um, but at the same time, I mean, the fact that we're continuously seeing these action plans come out, um, it still raises the question of, well, what actually is happening in terms of um, you know, the situation on the ground. Um, particularly if you look at how enforcement might differ in different parts of the country. Um, the IP protection environment in Beijing or Shanghai is very different from what it might be in Guizhou um, or in other less developed parts of the country. Um, and so again, while on paper um, this is potentially a positive step forward, um, a lot of the questions um, are still unanswered. Um, and a lot of the deeper structural issues um, are going to persist um, and kind of eat away at, at some of the um, potential commitments that we might see under this deal. Um, Nick, we spent much of 2019 fixating on whether China could continue to deliver the 6% growth number. Um, we saw American markets hit, hit record highs on enthusiasm around this trade one deal here. But the reaction in Chinese markets has been a little more muted, I would say. What is the potential for this trade agreement to revitalize growth momentum in the Chinese economy in the first half of the year? Yeah, well, what I said before on things like restoring investor and consumer confidence, that's important for things like domestic investment and domestic consumption. But much of the growth slowdown that we've seen since, you know, late 2018 throughout 2019, that has been primarily a domestically driven story. Um, the trade war has, of course, had an impact on that. Um, but it's other things in the market that are weighing this down. Things like, um, you know, high levels of credit in the system, the inability to access credit to translate that into investment, um, falling levels of consumption tied to all of this. Um, the, the trade deal is important in the sense that it might stabilize external sector performance. That is undoubtedly good. 
Um, but growth pressures elsewhere are expected to persist. And the EIU's core forecast for this year is we are expecting growth to slip just below 6% on average in 2020. Um, we don't think that we're going to really see a rebound to the high levels of growth that we saw um, over the past decade. I mean, the Chinese economy has just shifted too much away from um, that past structure. Nick, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Nick Marrow, uh, Lead Global Trade, the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit. Uh, Ginny, you're going to stay with us, so we'll come back to you and we'll put some, um, some more of these questions to you. So, these US markets then, they really like phase one? Well, they like it a bit, I think is fair to say. But my question is, if you add stimuli over here, what does that mean for stimulus over here? I.e., when we had tax cuts in the US, what did that do to central banker psychology in terms of what they had to do? i.e. are you doubling up if you have fiscal and monetary as well and that is a big question for many central bankers this time around of course because apparently this will act as a stimulus uh, for the US economy but what does that mean for central banks going forward saying actually we've had the stimulus from phase one maybe you don't need our help markets and maybe so that's one of the areas where people think well we gain over here but we're not going to get what we want over there as well Anyway, in the meantime, when my answer to Jeff's question uh, was, I think, suitably nuanced because the markets did like it. We saw record levels on utilities, healthcare, industrials, consumer staples, communication services at their highest level uh, since the 10th month of 2001. So, yes, the markets are moving up. And, yes, we are seeing new record highs on all of these. But in similar ways to Brexit, which, let's be honest about it, we were obsessing about Brexit on a daily basis and we May still do that in the autumn of this year as we get nearer uh, to the crux point on these trade talks. But at the moment, people don't look at Brexit in the short term on a daily news flow basis. And it will probably be the same about trade. So once that's out the way, what are you looking at? Well, I know what you're looking at. You're looking at earnings. And that's why we saw in the last 24 hours, of course, extraordinary moves on JP Morgan versus Wells Fargo. One company that knocked the ball out of the absolute park. Another one that's still got way loads of problems from a four-year-old scandal. The latter being, of course, uh, Wells Fargo. What are you looking at today? Well, you're going to have to start looking at data again, aren't you, ladies and gentlemen, if it's not phase one trade deal or Brexit? Yeah. And we've got one of the daddies of data or the mummies of data, to be precise as well, retail Sales. I don't know who does the shopping in my house, but a bit of both, really. Anyway, so retail sales, have a look at that. We've had pretty tepid CPI and PPI already this week. Here's where the oil price is trading, 58.26 for your US measure, for Brent, 64.48. Spot gold, still got a relative bid, I would suggest, despite some of these uh, political uncertainties, certainly abating pausing, remaining dormant rather than going away completely. Asian indices, let's have a look. Let's have a look mostly at the, the Chinese markets. The Shanghai Composite down four temps. A little move on the Hang Sang. They're not enjoying the fact that Jeff spent a bit of time in Hong Kong, spending vast amounts of money, I'm told. Uh, the Nikkei barely moving, 0.07 of 1% high. ASX is getting a bid, though. Maybe the mineral side of things there helping out, 0.7 of 1%. Opening calls for the European indices look like this. I love this. Look at this. Somebody has gone out there and put up 0.7 on the chart. <laughs> have you ever tried to trade 0.7 of a FTSE future? It's hard. Trust me, I have. Here we are. Very nice. Uh, let's uh, take a quick break, then we will be back very shortly. Coming up on the programme, President Trump reportedly making fresh threats about international dealings with Iran, with Europe's car makers, car markets and makers back in his sights. We'll talk oh, more about that. remember August? Oh, I remember August last year. It was great. We weren't worried about digital taxes in Europe and the US. Now, trade tensions may be easing between the US and China, but America still faces a feud with the EU. 
over French plans for a new digital tax. And Karen. Just a reminder, we're podcasting, so if you can't get enough of Sporkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back, everybody. President Trump has threatened Britain, France and Germany with a 25% tariff on European auto imports if they fail to formally accuse Iran of breaking the 2015 nuclear deal. This according to the Washington Post. That's despite the three European countries triggering a dispute mechanism against Tehran and signalling their intent to do so for weeks. While the threat of sanctions (coughs) is not a new play in the Trump administration's playbook, It is the first time it has been used to manipulate European foreign policy, according to the Washington Post. EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan is in Washington aiming to soothe tensions between Brussels and the Trump administration. The two sides remain locked in a dispute over aircraft subsidies and France's plans for a digital levy on US tech giants. Charlotte joins us with more. Charlotte, in many ways, the digital tax has been about fairness, ensuring companies pay their fair share and not just in a jurisdiction where they want to with the right tax rates that that appeal. But all that is going to fall by the wayside if we see a full-blown conflict between the United States and Europe. And there's a real fear because tensions are easing with China, as we saw yesterday, that the glare of the Trump administration could turn back towards Europe. And there's real fear here that tensions could rise this year, especially on an election year. And of course, as you said, the digital digital tax is a sore point here in this relationship. It's interesting, though, because it was on the back on this French digital tax after failing to come to an EU agreement. France went its own way to impose its own tax. Uh, And this then uh, creates some tensions with the US that put a list of goods that would be imposed by 100% uh, uh, because the US think this is a discriminatory measure against American companies. And France is saying it's not discriminatory against U.S. companies. A lot of Chinese, German, British companies would be under it, about 30 companies, we think. Uh, but again, this is a conversation here. It's interesting here that it's Phil Hogan going to Washington. It's his first visit outside of the EU as trade commissioner uh, going to Washington. So there's a reframing here going back towards an EU uh, conversation with the US rather than just French and it's a new commission as we know uh, Phil Hogan here and now trade commissioner so there's a bit of a reframing here we know that France and the US have put themselves a two-week negotiation here Uh, so we're about a week into this negotiation between Monsieur Le Maire the finance minister and Mr. Mnuchin Uh, they are meeting in Davos next week Uh, France is hoping that the US will come back to us and OECD framework to come on the conversation negotiation to come up with a global digital tax. Uh, but here, very sticky point, the digital tax of so Phil Hogan meeting today with Mr. Lighthizer in Washington should be a very interesting conversation. Gina, jump in on this. So uh, you mentioned the OECD. The OECD started working on this issue in 2015.
15, basically saying, let us, give us time so that we can figure out uh, a, a multilateral solution, and we still don't have a solution, which is what pushed France to go their own way, right? And that's why they're being called out. Um, do you see an end in terms of an OECD solution anytime soon? Well, there was hope after the G7 in Biarritz in August that the U.S. was actually on board with this discussion. So there was hoping there would be a boost and they would come to a solution. Mm -hmm. The OECD is still working uh, on, on coming up. The, the, the conversation is still going. They're, they're hoping to present some of some points of this conversation mm -hmm. of uh, this negotiation at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. uh, but while if the U.S. is not on board, of course, this conversation will not go anywhere. Can we switch focus to what this means for the U.S. tech companies? Because as we look at all the, the, the different workings, whether it's the French that take the lead with the OECD steps up where the European Parliament takes a role. If somebody has some success, what does this mean for the US tech companies? Because I have a, a feeling not much of it is priced into the action that we're seeing on the, some of the fangs, Gina. I agree. If you look at current multiples, they're still actually extraordinarily high, even considering all of the trade tensions and everything that should have been pulling those multiples down. They're definitely not priced for a hit to revenues um, in this way. And, and this is actually even broader than tech companies. There, it actually covers a whole lot of services that are not even remotely priced for this. Um, linkage is a concept brought to us, obviously, during the Nixon presidency, but increasingly it seems that the Trump administration is using the same diplomatic tool. Is there a way that actually the EU can parlay this uh, threat of digital taxes to reduce the effect of some auto-focused taxes being imposed by the United States re-Iran? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that it, it is certainly a way to, uh, to address these issues because what the, what the U.S. has done is they've basically gone in a bilateral way, country by country, rather than even addressing the EU as a whole, right? So they attack the German auto industry, uh, the French, you know, wine, champagne, you know, export goods. Um, if you... If the EU can present a solution even ahead of OECD, it could change the conversation. I mean, you've already actually heard that the UK has proposed a 2% uh, tax as well. Now, whether or not they can actually follow through on that is a whole other story. But the point is, is this issue is something that is global. Um, and the more countries that push this issue, uh, it will be harder and harder for the US, even though they clearly have the most to lose, to not get on board. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.